1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, Ishbosheth is murdered by men thinking David will reward them, and they receive the same reward as the man who claimed to kill King Saul. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. The title of the message is it's not about me
2: All right, Second Samuel Chapter Four. Second Samuel Chapter Four. Well, things started looking better in Chapter Three, the Civil War, but Because Joab murdered Abner, the peace that Abner negotiated between Israel and David is is off, and the civil war continues. But because Ishbosheth is a weak leader, the conflict doesn't continue for that much longer. And when the nation reunites finally, it does provoke an attack from the real enemy, the Philistines. And so through all this long journey, David finally will take back the land that the Philistines stole from Israel. And in that, he realizes something very important. He realizes that God prospered him because God wanted to bless his people, that it was never about David. Not that God didn't love David, not that God didn't want to bless David, but he raised him up and prospered him in that spot, not for him, but for the people. So chapter four, we begin in verse one. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. Now, Saul's sons had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Baana, the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Ramon, a Beerothite of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Beerothites fled to Gitaim, and they were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, he had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And so we're kind of introduced to the power structure over here on Israel's side. These other tribes that have not recognized David's kingship yet after Abner's gone. He was the real power there, but we're introduced to the situation here, and given this kind of the state of the civil war. It mentions first uh, concerning Ishbosheth that when he heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, and the idea of him being dead in Hebron, he's he's probably thinking that David rejected the peace offer. Oh, you want peace? Here's my answer, and he kills Abner. And so as a result, his hands, it says, were feeble. It means to hang limp, and all the Israelites were troubled. All the strength for the conflict drained out of Ishbosheth. He He knew he couldn't defeat David, especially without Abner. But on the other hand, he thinks, well, peace is impossible because David doesn't want peace. He killed Abner. And so he's in this spot where he feels stuck. Now, I'm sure all of us have found ourselves in situations where you know, you just kind of go, I, I don't want to think about it. I, you know, I, I, I wish it would just all go away. I close my eyes and I'll open them and it'll be gone, right? We've all gone through stuff. Some of us obviously much more serious than others, but where you just kind of wish you could close your eyes and you'd wake up and it would all be a bad dream, right? The problem is, is that when you're awake, <laughs> it's not a dream and, and you can't just be stuck. You can't just be stuck. Now, it doesn't mean you need to go off and do something. That is sometimes and frequently a mistake as well. But sometimes doing the something is seeking the Lord. And if Ishbosheth had sought the Lord here, the Lord would have told him and said, David didn't kill Abner. You know, there is an option for you still. But he didn't. And so he's stuck. And because there's no leader now, it says all the Israelites were troubled. The word there means terrified. In other words, if David did that to Abner, a highly respected general in the army, what would he do to them if he won? They sided with Ishbosheth as well. And that David would win was surely inevitable now that Abner was dead because their king wasn't standing up for them by trying to do anything, whether it was defeat David or try to make peace it's interesting because this idea of David being a tyrant king will end up getting David in trouble later on when Absalom turns the people against him. He's going to come and say, well, you know, if I were king, we didn't have this tyrant over here as a king, I would do things much better. And it creates a problem later on. So while Joab may think he's done David a service by killing Abner, the way he dealt with Abner only deepened the rift that Abner created, which shows us an important truth. (laughs) Two wrongs never make a right. Never. Never under any circumstances. You cannot fight evil with evil. All right? The the scriptures tell us very plainly in Romans chapter 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a command from God. It's not, hey, this is a way that you can approach things. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome it with good. No. He says, this is the call of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not allowed to let evil defeat us. We are to overcome it with good or to respond to evil with right. What we see in this conflict between the tribes that rejected David is a consistent line of responding to wrongdoing with more wrongdoing. And it's interesting because when you look at David's side, we see the same thing with one exception. David alone seems to share God's heart of overcoming evil with good. And so in this, we want to be like David. In Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, it has more to say than just don't be overcome by evil. It also says this, beginning in verse 17, it says, do not repay any man evil for evil. Instead, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lies in you, God doesn't expect you to control other people, but as If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. And Joab could have done that, even though it would have been extremely difficult. Dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And isn't that what David did with his enemies? Always did that with his enemies. Lord, you get him. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you he shall heap coals of fire on his head. I love how I've heard that interpreted at times. When you're really nice to people, it just, you really get some. No, that, that's absurd. You know, if you're really nice to people, you're heaping coals of fire on your head. You're going to burn their head off. No, the idea is back then, everybody carried coals on their head, carried them in in containers because it's not like you just had them around where you could use them all the time. And so you'd go purchase them and you'd bring them home. And they were necessary to cook your food, to keep the home warm, all these things. And so the idea is by doing this, you're caring for them. You're blessing them. And that's when it closes off with that last verse. Do not be overcome by evil, little children. Overcome evil with good. One of the many things I remember my parents telling me, particularly my mom, when I was little, was two wrongs don't make a right. I got six siblings. And what happens when you have siblings, especially if you have that many? Well, somebody's doing something wrong. And usually they're doing it to another sibling. And so frequently, how do you respond when somebody's doing something wrong? You do something wrong back, right? And so early on, two wrongs don't make a right. Well, my little children, don't be over... It's like, same thing, the Lord's talking to us because it's hard. Our natural reaction is, you took that from me, I'm going to take something from you. My little children, support a poor lesson. You're not allowed to let evil overcome you. You defeat it by doing what's right, with good. Now, there were other powerful people who were on the other side, who were, had not sided with David. And since Ishbosheth is doing nothing, the writer decides to let us know about these other groups that potentially could have taken matters into their own hands. In verses two and three, we're introduced to these two high-ranking captains in Ishbosheth's army, Banna and Rechab. These are high-ranking military officers, and they are Berauthites. Now, that's interesting because the Berauthites are not Jews; they're not they're not Israelis. Uh, the Gibeonites lived in three large cities, and this is one of their cities. The Gibeonites, remember, they were the Canaanites that tricked Joshua into making a treaty with them. So what's interesting, though, we remember, we learned that Saul broke Israel's promise to the Gibeonites, and he tried to wipe them out. Well, when he did that, he took control of this city, and he made it part of Benjamin's territory, and then, you know, a bunch of Benjamites immigrated there. So these guys are from there. So they're part of Saul's family. They're very loyal to him. And these guys, they had fled Beeroth and to Gitaim and were sojourners there until this day. Uh, Beeroth is right next to Philistine territory, so they'd fled their homes after Saul was defeated and killed up in Jezreel. And it's interesting, it says they were here until this day, which means that David gave Beeroth back to the Gibeonites when he became king. They couldn't just go back. And so these guys are not exactly fond of David per se. They were high enough in the Israeli command structure to do something about Ishbosheth's inactivity, but they're not the only ones that could have stepped up. Someone else could have, although he was in a weak spot. Verse 4. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came about Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse, well... She was fleeing like everyone else because the Philistines were just ransacking everything and moving in. And so as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and and it was injured in his legs. It didn't work anymore. And so his his name was Mephibosheth. Now, again, we are introduced to Mephibosheth here because he's got a claim to the family of Saul to some degree. He will end up being, after the events of today and that we're going to study tonight, the last surviving member of Saul's family. But because of his disability, he can't really mount a war against David even if he wanted to. He is important to the narrative for other reasons, because David also made a covenant with Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20 verses 11 through 16, the last time that Jonathan and David met, they made a covenant with one another. In First Samuel 20, verse 11, when David is on the run initially from Saul, Saul came after him at Samuel's house. and looked really bad for David, and so David didn't come back, and the king was upset when he didn't come back, and so he's working with Jonathan to figure out you know, what he's supposed to do. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it's actually not the last time they saw each other, there's one other time. In verse 11 it says, And Jonathan said unto David, Come and let us go out into the field. And so they both went, both of them out into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I do not send unto you and show it to you, then the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But... If it please my father to do you evil, then I will show it to you and send you away that you may go in peace. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So the idea is he's pronouncing his loyalty to David. He's saying, David, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm going to let you know what my dad's thoughts are towards you. And if, if it's evil, then my, my blessing upon you, but you can go in peace. I'm not going to bring you in. But then he asked David for this in return. Verse 14, and you shall not only while I yet live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, you not know, Not only am I asking you not to kill me in a war with my dad, but also that you shall not cut off the kind, uh, thy kindness from my house forever, my family, my kids. He says, no, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. So the idea is, I'll be good to you, you be good to me and my family. Let's not do what, what rivals normally do in this day and age. And so Mephibosheth is, is, you know, how is David going to handle this guy? We'll find out later on in the story, but we're introduced to him and his situation here. Now, since he can't do anything, it leaves these other two guys. And so let's see what they do. Verse 5. And the sons of Rimon, the Bereathite, Rechab, and Baanah, they went and they came About the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. Back then, the Israelites had something very similar to a siesta time in the hottest part of the day. This is not, you know, Ishbosheth just, you know, wimping out, laying on the bed, oh, woe is me. I don't know why he's sleeping. It could just be he was taking a nap, and that's what people normally did at this time. Whatever he's doing, sleeping there, it makes it the ideal time to assassinate him. And so, their thought is, since David rejected Abner's attempt to make peace, then we're going to have to you know, find our own way to make peace. And so verse 6, They came thither into the midst of the house, as though they were just fetching grain, and they smote him under the fifth rib. That seems to be a favorite spot in Second Samuel. <clears throat> you know, I mean, find the fifth rib and never mind. Get him. And Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bench chamber, and they smote him, they stabbed him in the gut, and then they killed him. So then they put him to death after they stabbed him in the gut, and then they beheaded him and took his head and got away through the plain all night because they were ahead of all the pursuers. Ahead? Ahead? Yeah, yeah. These guys decide, well, we're going to try to win David's favor by making peace in a violent way. Abner tried to make peace in a peaceful way. We're going to try to win David's favor by making peace in a violent way. And so, verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron, and they said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, which sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. We are the instruments of of vengeance upon Saul for everything he did to you all those years, David. Aren't you happy with us? The war is over. We've brought you the head of your enemy. Well, David's response to them is consistent with how he's always previously treated Saul and his family. Verse 9 And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Bereathite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take away you from the earth? And so David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and they cut off their hands and their feet and hang them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner and Hebron. I love David's response. He says, as the Lord lives, let me tell you a very important truth, boys. As true as God is alive, who has redeemed my soul out of adversity. And by the way, he's the one who's always rescued me when things were bad. I didn't need people to go cutting off heads to rescue me. God's always been the one who's rescued me. If I executed a man who claimed to kill Saul, who was just looking for a reward, how much more when someone's committed a murder? How much more when, a wicked, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? The word righteous there means innocent. I don't think David is saying that Ishbosheth was a godly man or never did anything wrong, but Ishbosheth had never hunted David down like Saul, his father, did. This was Abner's war, not Ishbosheth's. And Ishbosheth hadn't done anything worthy of execution, let alone being murdered. And so David, who is a godly king, must execute these men for their crimes. And so he says, Shall I not therefore require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? So David, he, he doesn't just kill them, he cuts their hands and feet off and then. It says hangs, but the word there for hangs is polite. They hung all right, but it's because a spear was shoved up through their spine all the way through their their head. And so uh, that'll give you a beautiful mental image. So David impales their mutilated bodies on a spike to make it clear what he thinks about what people who do this type of thing, how he feels about it. And he's not cool with it. David makes it very clear that he does not approve of what they've done. He doesn't want anyone to think these guys were hired or that he was okay with what they did. And in contrast to how he dishonors them, it says, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Again, David honors the slain, trying to make it clear to everyone that he never wanted this war and he was not in favor of reuniting the kingdom through evil means. There's an idea called pragmatism out there, and it's the idea that the ends justify the means. That is not a biblical idea. The means need to be God's way. The ends never justify doing things opposite of God's way, period. What I love about these chapters here with David when he deals with Joab and he deals with these guys, deals with the Amalekite who, killed Saul, who claimed to kill Saul, David had so many opportunities to become the tyrant that Saul had been, right? But he resists every single time. It's like every single time he says, no, I'm not like Saul and I won't be like Saul. I'm going to try to do this the right way. And this is one of the reasons why David will be beloved by so many, even though deep divides do exist in the nation. It's why David is remembered as Israel's greatest king, even though He wasn't even close to perfect. You see, David didn't make this about himself. He made it about what was best for God's people. Now, because David handles this the right way on multiple occasions, this gives the other tribal leaders courage to believe that peace might be possible. And so chapter 5, verse 1, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and they spoke, saying, Behold, We are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were he that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall feed my people Israel, and you shall be captain over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel." So David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So what's interesting is how the tribal leaders make their case for peaceful reunification here. They say to David when they come to him, behold, which means please listen to what we have to say. And then they give three reasons for why they want to reunite under his leadership. Number one, they said, listen, we are your bone and your flesh. We are all Israelis here. We are all God's people. This conflict is wrong. Good reason. That was a point that should have been seen as soon as Saul died, but I suppose it's better to eventually realize it than never. The second reason they give is, well, in time past, when Saul was king, you were he that led us out and brought Israel in. You were one of the highest ranking generals in our army. We've followed you before. And and you know what? The real enemy here are the Philistines and you're the best person to lead us to defeat them. Another good reason. The third reason they say is, and the Lord said to you, you shall feed my people Israel. You shall be a captain over Israel. And this was the most important reason. God had picked David to shepherd them, to care for them. And so what they're saying in this is, we're prepared to submit to God's plan now. We're done doing things our own way. And so in this, all three of their reasons, they, they contain a confession. We blew it big time. But We want to make things right if you're willing. And David is willing. You know, in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says something very interesting. He starts the chapter off by saying, offenses are going to happen. You're going to wrong people. People are going to wrong you. It's impossible that it won't happen. And then he says, if you're the one doing the wrong and you do it to one of my little ones, better that you go put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the seat. Don't do that. That's the idea of what he's trying to convey. But what if it's done to you? How do you, how do you respond? Luke seventeen three and four. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day, turn again to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, the argument I frequently hear people make is, but they've already asked me a couple times and they've already admitted they did something wrong and they did it again. They're not sincere. There's no way they're sincere. First off, you and I can never know someone's heart. But secondly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because that's what Jesus said, not me. I didn't write that. I didn't go, hey, I'm going to say something really crazy. Nobody's going to like it, but it's going to be how it is. Jesus said this. So if your brother sins against you, he says, rebuke him. Tell him that was wrong, man. But if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. And I love that Jesus says before he commands us to do this, take heed to yourself bitterness and unforgiveness are something I must guard against. No matter how horrible the thing's done to me, those two sins will destroy me if I don't take heed to myself. They'll destroy me. doesn't matter how much someone else is trying to destroy me. That will destroy me if I do not guard against it.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.